Well, good morning, Rocky Peak. Good to see you. Happy Easter. Isn't it awesome to be here and celebrating uh, the resurrection of Jesus together? And uh, really looking forward to spending this time uh, with you today as we kind of explore that implications for our lives. Now, if you're brand new here, you're, you're visiting in town, or you're from the area, and, and, and you're here uh, new, we just want a special welcome to you. We love that you, uh, love that you, you decided to choose uh, uh, this day to come and join us. And inside your uh, program, uh, where we're going to be going to our time of teaching, and inside the program is a message note sheet that we use every week for our time of teaching, but you'll definitely need it today, even more so than normal, and so I encourage you to take that out. And uh, if you guys are all set, ready to go, I'm ready to go. You guys ready? All right, let's pray. God, we're just so thankful for who you are and what you've done for us in Jesus Christ and how his resurrection is the first step of the recreation, the restoration, the renewal of all creation. And and God, that you invite us into relationship to be part of that program, part of that plan uh, through his life and death. And so today as we talk about uh, the resurrection, as we go back in time, as we visit this this first Sunday, uh, we pray that you'd meet us in a powerful way Give us a new understanding of who you are, what it means to be a follower of Jesus, what it means to participate in his life and death and resurrection, and we pray it in your name. Amen. Amen. Well, our story starts today on a dry, dusty road. It's out in the middle of nowhere, and he's come a long way. It's been quite a while since he left the gods of his youth. And he converted to this new God. And there's no question that this is one of the best decisions he's ever made in his life. It's brought focus. It's brought purpose. It's brought meaning. Life makes so much more sense. It's definitely rung true. And it's because of that new faith that he has made this long pilgrimage to a far and foreign land uh, to worship this new God. And yet as he leaves the city and begins the long drive home to the the home, the the land he came from, there's still a a hunger in his heart. There's a stirring. There's a desire for something more. It was an incredible trip, but it was not all that he hoped for. It didn't satisfy the deepest longings of his heart. And so as he drives along, as the driver takes off, he pulls out a copy of the ancient scriptures of this faith. And he begins to search. He begins to read. And little does he know that on this day, something's going to happen on this ride home that's going to change his life forever. Today we gather to celebrate the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus. It's kind of the, the turning point of all human history, especially the, the resurrection, because resurrection is sort of the prototype, the first step of the recreation of the entire cosmos. And uh, one of my favorite accounts of the resurrection uh, is written by a man who didn't grow up as a follower of Jesus. He didn't even grow up in the Gentile or in the Jewish faith. He grew up as a Gentile, uh, but he came to faith in Christ later in life. And, uh, and then after he became a follower of Jesus, he was a very educated man. He was a doctor. His name was Luke. Uh, he wanted to do careful research into the, the origins of the Jesus movement. 
And so he did firsthand careful research and went back and interviewed the people that were there during the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus, his teaching, and also interviewed the people that were the founders of this new Jesus movement that was taking the Roman Empire by storm. And he wrote two volumes uh, of his account of the life and teaching of Jesus and then this, this, this movement that it launched. The first volume was we call it the Gospel of Luke, and the second volume we call the the uh, Acts of the Apostles, which kind of uh, documents the rise of the movement after Jesus left. And uh, in the end of that first volume, uh, the Gospel of Luke, uh, Luke takes us back to that first, uh, first evening, that first Sunday, the first night that Jesus shows up as uh, alive uh, after he had been executed less than 72 hours before. The, uh, the scene is an upper room. The, uh, his closest followers, the disciples, are there. And you have to remember this, that, that they had no paradigm uh, in their worldview of a resurrection. Uh, like most Jews at the time, they believed that there would be a resurrection at the end of time when we would receive new bodies and we go through a final judgment. But they had nothing in their worldview that prepared them for the resurrection of Jesus in time and space right, right now. And so when Jesus shows up that night, uh, they are not only shocked, uh, they are highly skeptical. And it's not until after that they've shared a meal together, they've uh, investigated his, his hands, his feet, his side, the, the scars that, are, that have healed miraculously, apparently, in the, next, in the last couple of days, uh, that they, they begin to move past a shock and surprise to joy. And yet they're still totally confused because uh, as Jews... Uh, one thing they know about Messiah is Messiahs don't die, uh, Messiahs don't lose, uh, Messiahs win. Uh, uh, a crucified Messiah, by definition, is an oxymoron. And, and so, uh, th though Jesus obviously is alive, though it's obviously him, though obviously it's a miracle uh, that they can't even begin to understand, uh, there's still their whole worldview of what it means to be Messiah and what God's doing has been shattered. And so to help them understand what's going on, uh, Jesus does a Bible study with them. And what he does is he walks them back through the Hebrew scriptures, starting with the Law of Moses, the first five books, and then moving on to the prophets and then the Psalms. Uh, he begins to go back to some of these ancient prophecies, hundreds, in some cases thousands of years old, uh, about the coming of the Messiah to help them understand uh, that this was all part of the plan. In fact, there on your note sheet, I put a verse from Luke 24, where it says, uh, this is at dinner time now, that after they've had dinner, Jesus said, when I was with you before, I told you that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled as part of the plan. And then, and then I want you to catch this. He, he did what? He opened their minds. Let's say that together. He what? He opened their minds to understand what? The, the scriptures. And so, so something supernatural happens. He takes him on this journey back in time. Uh, he walks him through uh, many of these passages in the Old Testament. And he opens their mind. And for the first time, these, these passages, they've been raised on it since they were kids. Uh, they're familiar with it. They're coming alive. They're making sense. And all of a sudden, a whole new paradigm of what it means to be a Messiah follower is coming into place. And one of the passages I'm sure that Jesus covered that night 
Uh, Luke doesn't tell us which exact passages he uses, but in volume two of Luke, in, in the Acts of the Apostles, he quotes this passage uh, uh, more than once, and, and it's one of the most uh, clear prophecies about the coming of the Messiah, so I'm sure that Jesus covered it, uh, is in Isaiah 52 and 53. And uh, what I want to do is, is I want to, uh, today, as we celebrate the resurrection, I, I want to go back in time to that first uh, resurrection Sunday. I, I want us to take a, a time trip back. I want us to go back. I, I want you to visualize this, that we're, we're there, we're sitting around the table uh, with Jesus. I want you to picture this, that, that as he's teaching, as he's uh, walking them through these passages. He's motioning with his hands like I'm doing right now. And every time he motions, uh, you're seeing the scars. You're seeing these huge scars that are wounded in his hands. And life is beginning to come together. Their, their whole worldview, their paradigm is changing. It's, it's been shattered. He's reconstructing it now, helping them to understand why he has come. And so I want us to go back in time. And so if you have your Bibles, I want, to, uh, I want you to uh, turn with me to Isaiah 53. If you have your Bible on your phone or your, uh, some app, uh, notepad, you can go to open that up. Uh, if you don't have uh, any of those, uh, I printed the passage for you uh, in your note sheet. And so, uh, but I encourage you, if you have your Bible, go ahead and use it because you can mark it up like we normally do. So there in your note sheet, there's a section called the servant, the suffering, uh, and the surprise. And so, let me, let me set this up. The prophet Isaiah lived over 700 years before Jesus. So let's, let's put that, that back. I mean, it's like before Christopher Columbus, okay? So and, and compared to us. So 700 years, and, and so he's one of the most famous prophets in Israel's history. And, and on this particular day, he has a, a vision uh, he sees into the future. And in the future, he, in this, this, this vision of the future, he sees a mysterious figure that he calls the servant of the Lord. Now, uh, Lord, when we get there, will be all caps. Uh, and, and as we've learned here at Rocky Peak, that that means uh, the translators are tipping us off. That when it says Lord in all caps, this is the, uh, the name, the personal name for God uh, from the Old Testament. That God revealed himself to Moses, the name Yahweh. Uh, it was a name so holy the Jews would not pronounce it. They would not, not, not speak it. And so he looks in the future, he sees this servant of the Lord, the servant of Yahweh. And remember in the Old Testament, some of the greatest leaders were called the servants of Yahweh. So you've got uh, men like David was called the servant of the Lord. Moses was called the servant of the Lord. And so, so he sees this great leader coming, this servant of Yahweh. But when he comes to the nation of Israel, instead of being embraced and received, he's going to be rejected. It's like they're not going to recognize that he's from Yahweh. In fact, uh, there, there's nothing about his coming that's going to signal that he's a great leader. There's, there's, he's not, there's not going to come with pomp and circumstance. He's not going to come with a, a, a white horse and an army. Uh, there's nothing about him that's going to say, this is the leader. He's going to be kind of, kind of like incognito. In fact, he, when he comes, he's actually, Isaiah says, he's actually going to be rejected by the nation. And he's going to go through a time of intense suffering and persecution and even death. And when this happens, the nation is going to assume that the reason he's suffering is because of something he's done bad, something he's done wrong, that God is punishing him. And it's not until later, Isaiah says, they're going to realize that, that actually he was suffering for them, uh, kind of in their place uh, for the rebellion that they've, they've committed as a nation against 
God. And then he says, and it says at the end of this story, there's a surprise ending, okay? So I want us to go back in time. And again, I want you to picture this, right? We're, we're a large group here, but I want you to picture we're gathered around the table. It's an upper room. These men have been hiding out for the authorities less than 72 hours earlier. Jesus was arrested. He's been uh, beaten. He's been uh, uh, crucified. He's been scourged. Uh, he's died, but he suddenly shows up. Your whole world is shaken. Your paradigm's blown apart. You're excited to see it, but you don't get at all what's happening because messiahs don't die. And Jesus says, well, let me walk you through uh, what the prophet said. And so in Isaiah 53 and verse 1, let's jump in and we'll start. That this passage actually starts at the end of prophecy, starts at the end of chapter 52, but we're going to start at 53. We'll pick up the end of 52 later. And so Isaiah starts off and he says, uh, who has believed our message? In other words, uh, we're bringing this incredible tale. I'm telling you this incredible prophecy of what's going to happen, but who's going to believe it? It's so far-fetched. And to whom has the arm of Yahweh been revealed? Uh, the arm of Yahweh is an Old Testament way of talking about the power of God. And he says, uh, uh, this, this is a story I'm about to tell you about the power of Yahweh. But the story is so strange. It's so unexpected. It's so wild. Like who in the world's ever going to believe this story? And so he begins to talk about this servant who will come. And he says in verse 2, he grew up before him, before God, like a tender shoot, like a root out of dry ground. He said he, it's, he grew up like a plant growing up in a desert, just kind of a, a place you wouldn't expect him coming from. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. There was nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. So Isaiah is looking off in the future, and he says there's, no, there's nothing about him. And he may be talking about his physical appearance, it's possible, but it, it may be more that majesty piece, that he's not coming as a king. There's nothing really signaling. This is a, uh, a kind of an envoy from Yahweh. This is a servant from Yahweh, so listen to him. In fact, it says he was, he was despised. He was rejected by men. He was a man of sorrows, uh, familiar with suffering. He was like one from men hide their faces. He was despised, and we esteemed him. And so, so he, he says this, this servant's going to come, uh, amazing uh, leader coming from Yahweh, and yet he's not going to be recognized. We're not going to be drawn to him. He's actually going to be rejected by the very people he's being sent to. And yet he says, surely he took up our infirmities and he carried our sorrows. This suffering wasn't for himself, it was for us. He says, yet we, we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him and afflicted. So as Isaiah's picturing, he says he's going through this suffering. We're looking at it like he's getting what he deserves. And yet the reality is he's, he's taking this, this punishment that somehow we deserve. And so in verse 5, he begins to walk us through now the, the specific kinds of suffering the servant of Yahweh will go through. And he says in verse 5, he was pierced for our transgressions, uh, for our rebellion, our uh, violations, uh, our sin. He was crushed for our iniquities. Now, earlier uh, in this prophecy, way back at the beginning, he talks about the, how extreme this suffering, this crushing is going to be. And so if you're following along in the note sheet, this is the next verse there. If you have your Bibles, let's go back to 52.14. Uh, this prophecy starts at 52.13. But at 52.14 it says, Just as there were many who were appalled at him, his appearance, catch this, 
was so disfigured, it was beyond that of any man, and his form was marred beyond human likeness. All right, so now, now I want you to picture this. We're sitting around the table. We're with Jesus. With every motion of his hands, we're remembering the scars. We, we were there just about 72 hours before, either late, uh, late Thursday night or early Friday morning. We were there when he was arrested, uh, run through, kept up all night, run through two uh, mock trials. Uh, we're told that the Roman soldiers, when he was brought before uh, the Roman governor, they began to beat on him. The, 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 the claim, the, the charge was high treason against the king, and so they, they dressed him in the robe. Uh, they took this uh, crown, uh, uh, they took this thorns, uh, long, you know, inch long, two inch long thorns, wove it into a crown, crushed it into his skull. The blood is running down his face, and then they began to beat him. And they took turns gathering around him and slugging him in the face and, and, and slapping him in the face. And so they're just beating him, and his face is puffy, it's red, it's, his nose is probably broken. He's probably got some teeth that are coming out at this point. And at this point, they're going to take him out, and they're going to scourge him, and, and a Roman scourge, the way it worked was the, the, the Roman executioner would use an instrument called a cat of nine tails. It was, a, it was a whip with a short wooden handle, would have these thongs of leather, maybe nine of them coming off. At the end of the thongs of leather were, were, uh, were balls of metal, there were hooks, uh, there were uh, pieces of bone and glass attached so that when the executioner would, would beat this person, would be tenderizing the meat like, like you're like tenderizing a steak and then ripping it off. And so they would take the prisoner, they would attach him by chains to a short metal a pillar, uh, position his feet back while his back was exposed, and then the executioner would begin to lash him. And as he would lash him, not only with a leather cut into the skin and muscles, but these, these, uh, these hooks and these bones and these uh, uh, metal balls would crash into uh, the rib cage, the back, the buttocks, the shoulders, and as they would pull back this, uh, this, the, the, the whip, it would rip chunks of flesh and muscle and bone out until by the time a, a man was done with a scourging, often his rib cage, his shoulders, his bones, his ligaments, his muscles are exposed. Sometimes internal organs would begin to be coming out. It was so severe that many times uh, you would not last through a Roman scourge. And then after they scourged him, after he's been beaten in the face, after the, the crown is on his head, they take him out to crucify him, make him carry his own huge cross beam, probably 90 pounds of weight. He can't, even, he can't even walk. They have to recruit someone to help him. He's falling down because he is just in shock from the loss of blood. They get him out there. They take railroad spikes. They drive him through his hands or his wrists and his feet. They put him up on a cross at eye level, not like the pictures on a hill far away. It's at eye level. They would do this in a public thoroughfare, like in a mall. They would, they would put it there so that everyone would go by. They could see him. You're at eye level. You're looking him in the, in, in the eye. He's a bloody mess. He's crucified with other people. There's no place. You're, you're naked. You're, there, you're hanging there naked. You're defecating. You're urinating. The place stinks. You've got flies around you. People are mocking, and that's the way he dies. And then when he dies, the Roman soldier 
officer to make sure that he's dead, takes his spear, uh, jabs it up under his rib cage to puncture the heart sac. It's the way they checked. Sure enough, out comes uh, a blood and serum, proving that he had been dead for some time. The blood in the heart sac had already begun to separate, and so you've got blood and the serum. It looks like blood and water. Sure enough, yes, he's dead. They take him down, put him in a tomb, and you're sitting there at dinner with this man less than 72 hours later as he's walking you through Isaiah 52 and every motion of his hands. You're seeing these healed scars and he comes to this verse, 52, 14, and it says, just as there were many who were appalled at him, his appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any man. His form was marred beyond human likeness and as you're reading this, the last 72 hours are going through your mind. And all of a sudden, a light is going on. Your paradigm is shifting. Your world is shattering. Something new is happening. You've never seen it before. This is a passage you've heard a million times, but you've never got it. And right now, right here, at this point in human history, it is coming alive. It's beginning to make sense. And right there, you move on then in 53.5. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And it's beginning to come together that the Messiah is coming to turn all things right. He's coming to restore all the creation. He's coming for a new heavens and a new earth. But he had to die first for the sins of the race to make it possible for this whole restoration to happen. And so he goes on. Isaiah goes on. And in his vision, as he looks into the future, he says, the punishment, this 55b, the punishment that brought us peace was upon him. In the New Testament, later on, the Apostle Paul will write in Romans chapter 5 that because of the death of Jesus, we can now have peace with God. And 700 years before, Isaiah wrote, the punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And by his wounds, we are what? We're healed. And now he talks about who we are. And he says, you know, we all like sheep have gone astray. And of course, this is true, isn't it? We, we, we've all been there. We've all done this. We're all part of this rebel race. We've all lived our lives as if God didn't, doesn't exist. We've all flouted his moral law. We, we've all known what's right and chosen to do what's wrong. We, we've all bowed down and worshiped other idols other than true God. As, it, as Paul will write in Romans 1, that we've worshiped the creation instead of the creator. And so he says that we all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. And Yahweh has laid on him the iniquity of us all. In 2 Corinthians 5, the Apostle Paul will describe the death of Christ like this, that God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God. And now he goes on and he talks about his arrest, the trial of this servant of the Lord that will come. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he didn't open his mouth. We know that Jesus, when he was up before both trials, refused to defend himself. 
He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shears is silent, so he did not open his mouth. And by oppression and judgment, he was taken away. He wasn't murdered in a back alley. It wasn't a private affair. It was a, it was a legal judgment, but it was totally illegal in its, its form and its content, false uh, witnesses. And who can speak of his descendants? For he was cut off from the land of the living. He actually died. For the transgression of my people, he was stricken. Isaiah wants us to be clear. The servant who's coming, it's not for his own sin. It's for the sin of the people. And now he talks about his burial. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. In Rome, when you were crucified, crucifixion was reserved for the lowest of the low criminals. If you're a Roman citizen, regardless of what you'd done, if even if you tried to kill the Caesar, it was illegal to be crucified. It was considered too horrendous a punishment. For, for any Roman citizen. Crucifixion was considered impolite to talk about in cultured society. And so when a man was crucified, they would throw him in a common grave with the wicked. And yet, there was a rich Jewish believer who came to the Roman governor Pilate after Jesus died and requested that he would be able to take down his body. And he was granted that request. And so he was, ended up not being, uh, going to be buried with the wicked, but he ended up dying in a rich man's tomb. And so 700 years before, Isaiah said he was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. And yet, it was the Lord's will, it was Yahweh's will to crush him and to make him suffer. This was all part of the plan. And though Yahweh makes his life a guilt offering, an offering for sin, he will see his offspring and prolong his days. And so now the story begins to turn. And the story of, of suffering, the story of death, the story of horrendous beatings, it suddenly turns and it begins to take a, a surprising direction. It says he'll see his offspring and prolong his days and the will of Yahweh will prosper in his hand like he will carry out the assignment he was given. And after the suffering of his soul, he will see the light of life. Now imagine this, 700 years before, everyone's trying to understand what this means. It sounds like, like this guy's coming back to life, but we know that's, that's not what it's saying. And he'll be satisfied. And by his knowledge, his knowledge of the plan, my righteous servant will justify many. In Romans chapter 5, the apostle Paul says that by faith in Christ, we are justified in uh, justified by his death, that, that we are made right with God, not by our own performance, but by his for us, and he will bear their iniquities. And therefore, verse 12, I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong. In other words, he'll be greatly exalted. In fact, if you go back to 52.13, 
you're on the following on your note sheet, it's the next passage. But if you're in Bible 52.13, you go back. This is how this passage starts. He says, see, my servant will act wisely, and he will be raised and lifted up and highly exalted. That's how the story started. The story started that, that this, this servant is going to be highly exalted. And then we went into the valley and read about the path to this exaltation. And now we're coming out at the end of the prophecy where he again is being exalted. And, and so, of course, as the disciples are there that night, it's beginning to make sense. Forty days from now, uh, 40, about a month and a half later, Jesus, before their eyes, is an eyewitness. They'll watch him uh, kind of levitate. Uh, he'll, he'll go up into the clouds and disappear. We're told that he will sit down at the right hand of God the Father, which is a way of talking about the, uh, the kind of ascension of Jesus to becoming king. Amen. Amen. Uh, <laughs> yes, from the mouth of babes. Uh, from where he'll rule, and that he then one day he will return to turn all wrongs to right, to bring his kingdom in power, to bring in the new heavens and the new earth that's made possible by this death that he has gone through. And so in verse 12, 55, 12, therefore I'll give him a portion among the great and he will divide the spoils with the strong. Because he poured out his life unto death, he was numbered with the transgressors for he bore the sin of many and he made intercession for the transgressors. Now, now again, I want you to picture, I want you to picture that night you're sitting there at the table, right? You've, you've been scared out of your mind. The door has been locked for fear of the authorities. All of a sudden, Jesus has shown up. You're shocked. You're skeptical. He shares a meal. You begin to see that it really is, it really is him. And now he begins to walk you through. And you've read through Isaiah 53. And the lights have gone on. And you're beginning to understand why he had to come, why he had to die. I'm sure the conversation went on that night to talk about the resurrection of all things, that as his followers, one day they would share in that resurrection and it would be the resurrection of the whole cosmos, that the reason he died was to restore all of creation. He's the prototype. He's the first step of this plan that's coming. And now let's fast forward in time. Let's fast forward in time, 40 days, about a month and a half later, Jesus has now left. He tells his men, I want you to wait in Jerusalem because I'm sending you a gift. His name is the Holy Spirit. He's the Spirit, my Spirit. He will come to live inside of you and he will empower you to live this life I've been teaching you how to live the last three years and he will empower you to take this message of my life, of my death and resurrection, what it means, to the whole world. So wait. And so 10 days later, sure enough, the Holy Spirit comes. Peter gets up in the same city where 40 days before Jesus had been arrested and he shares the message of the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus and 3,000 Jewish people come to faith in their Messiah. And the movement is off and running and it begins to spread like wildfire. And by the time we get to chapter 8 of Acts, which is Luke's second volume of this story, we meet a man, and he's the man we started the day with, a man on pilgrimage. 
we learn more about this man, that he's from the nation of Ethiopia, so he's probably a black man. He was raised most likely worshiping pagan gods, but somewhere along the way, someone had shared the message of the God of Israel, and he had come to faith, he had converted, and now he's on pilgrimage. He's on pilgrimage from Ethiopia all the way to Jerusalem to come to the temple where the sacrifices are made for our sins, where the priests operate, where the place where heaven meets earth, the holiest place on earth. And he's come searching for this God of Israel. And he's had, I'm sure, an amazing trip. But now it's time for him to go home. And so we find out that he's a high-ranking official in Ethiopia. I'm sure he's traveling with entourage. He's traveling in a chariot. And he begins heading down the road from Jerusalem back home. And there's still something in his heart that's missing. He's been there. He's seen the temple. He's seen the priesthood, the, the sacrament. There's something missing. And so on his way home, he reaches next to him and he opens up a scroll. And he begins to read from the old prophecies of the Old Testament. And as he's reading, he comes across a passage. He's having a hard time understanding. It turns out it's Isaiah 53. Meanwhile, back in Jerusalem, there's one of the great leaders of the early church, a man named Philip. And the Holy Spirit, remember Jesus said, wait for the Holy Spirit. He'll direct you. He'll lead you, empower you. The Holy Spirit speaks to Philip. He says, Philip, I have an assignment for you. I want you to go down to the international highway, the one that goes from Jerusalem down to Gaza, like in the Gaza Strip today. And I want you to go down there. When you get there, I'll let you know what to do. And so he heads down, and when he gets there, all of a sudden he looks up. Here comes the Ethiopian official with his entourage. And the Spirit speaks to Philip. And he says, go up and stand by the chariot. And so he does. And when he gets there, he hears this man reading from Isaiah 53. And he says to this official, do you understand what you're reading? And this convert says, how can I understand? It doesn't make any sense. I don't know who the prophet's talking about with this suffering and this death and not being wrecked, is he talking about himself? Is he talking about someone to come? I don't get it. And so Philip climbs up in the chariot and they begin to ride. Over the next few miles, he begins to explain about Jesus, about the servant of the Lord, about dying for our sins and how it makes a way for us to be justified with God and to participate one day in the resurrection. And as he's walking him through, Isaiah 53, Jesus is opening the eyes of the Ethiopian to the scriptures, just like Jesus once opened the eyes of his disciples to the scriptures. And I'm sure that as they're driving, Philip talks to him about becoming a follower of Jesus and how the first step is to be baptized, which is a picture of the death and the resurrection of Jesus, that we die with him to our old life, we come under God's leadership of King Jesus, 
and we rise with him out of the water, a new person through the power of the Holy Spirit. And so as they're having this discussion, they happen to be going by a stream or a river or some body of water. And Philip turns and says, is there anything more I need to know? Because since the moment Philip has started sharing, his heart has been leaping out of his chest. And he wants to run to Jesus. He, he cannot wait to give his life to Jesus. He can't wait to be made right with God. He can't wait to have a new relationship with God as his father. He can't wait. And so he says, is there anything holding me back? Is there anything else I need to know? Is there anything I need to understand? Is there anything I have to do? Is there anything that will prevent me from being dying with Jesus and rising with him in baptism right here and right now? And Philip says, no, I think you understand. And so right there, right then, as a result of Isaiah 53, this high Ethiopian official climbed out of that chariot, walked into that water, and Philip baptized him in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And it was resurrection day for that man. Would you pray with me? As our heads are bowed, our eyes are closed, I want to give us a chance to reflect on what we've studied today. We've gone back in time. We've, we've sat there as Jesus has explained the story of his life and death and resurrection. He shared with us that this resurrection is the first step of the new coming creation where all things will be made new. He shared with us that it was for us that he died, for us that he suffered. We, we've watched him. We've pictured in our mind's eye the, the brutality he's gone through in the last 72 hours. And now with his men there that night, it's our chance to respond. In a room like this, I know that there's at least five different kinds of people. And while our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed, I want to ask you, which of the five are you today? I'm sure in a room like this, there are some here that, like the disciples, were skeptics. And though this has been perhaps an impressive prophecy for you to read, there's, you're not yet ready to follow Jesus yet. You feel like you need to learn more. Maybe you need to come back, join us on this journey, explore him. We welcome skeptics here. Some of you, though, are in a different spot. You're more at the spot where the Ethiopian was. As Philip walked him through Isaiah 53, just like as we, you, your heart, too, is leaping out of your chest. You want to know this Jesus. You want to have your past forgiven. You want a fresh start. You want to know God. You want to leave your old life behind. You want to die with him to your old life and rise with him to a new life. And today, this very day, you're just so much wanting to give your life to Jesus right here and right now. And if that's you, I'm going to give you a chance in just a couple minutes. There's a third kind of person here that maybe you're not here normally at Rocky Peak or at any church on a weekend. But there was a time and there was a place when you 
gave your life to Christ. You, you asked him into your life to forgive your sins, and you started a journey. But somehow along the way, you got off track. You got derailed. Something happened. Something went wrong. Some temptation led you back. Some um, persecution de derailed you. Something happened. A relation, something went wrong. And you've not been walking with Jesus for a long time. And today as you're here, it's just so good to be back and, and so good to be hearing his word and you to remind you of what he suffered for you and you're just so grieving that you've walked away from him and you want to come back and, and you want to recommit your life to him. This is the fourth kind of person here that you are what we call here at Rocky Peak. You're a passionate Christ follower. You love Jesus and this Easter week, as we've gone back in time and read this ancient prophecy and we picture ourselves at the table, it has just created a new heart for you, a, a love for Jesus, a desire to love him, worship him, like Thomas would say a week later, fall down at his feet to see his hands, his, the scars, and say, my Lord and my God. And we're going to be going into worship in a little bit. And you're going to be able to chance just to pursue God on this Easter resurrection weekend. And then there's an, the last group of people here that you too are a follower of Jesus. And yet the reality is life is very hard for you right now. It might be relationally hard. Your marriage might be a mess. It might be they're having problems with your kids. It could be they're financially struggling. You've just lost your home. Work is a hard time. You're out of a job. Your health is failing. Whatever it is, you're in a place of pain. And you love Jesus, but as you read about the resurrection, you, what you say is, man, I would love a touch from Jesus today. I need to experience more of that resurrection power. And you want to come to him, and you want to surrender to him. And even though it's a hard time, you want to say, Jesus, if this is where you have me, I want to surrender, and I ask you for a touch of your spirit today. And so here's what's going to happen. In just a couple minutes, we're going to go into a time of worship. We're going to sing a couple songs. But during that time of worship, I'm going to ask you, whatever kind of person you are today, I want to give you a chance to respond. Maybe you want to come and worship down here at the front. Maybe you want to find a quiet place by the side and just pray. Around the room, we're going to have some, some leaders, some of our prayer team stationed around the room. Maybe you'd like some prayer for whatever you're going through in your life today. They would love to pray with you. And they're just around this auditorium on the sides. And we've got more in waiting if we need more. And so we're going to go into that time of prayer. It's going to be a time of prayer. It's going to be a time of worship where we come before God and we worship Jesus for the resurrection. And now for those of you who want to become a Christ follower today, I'm going to give you this opportunity. And the room is dark right now. I can't see real well. But if, you want, if you're at that place in your life, you want to give your life to Jesus that you're at that place where the, the Ethiopian was that day. Your heart's coming out of your chest. There may be a spiritual battle going on inside of you. Part of you saying, don't do this. The enemy trying to keep you back. Jesus calling to you. And, and you desire to be forgiven of your sins. You want to be justified. You want to be made right with God. You want to turn from your past. You want to rise with him the new life. You want the gift of his spirit. If that's you, I'm going to give you a chance to do that right now. And I'm going to pray a very simple prayer asking Jesus into your life. And if this expresses the desire of your heart, then I'm going to ask you to pray along with me under your breath, in your mind, in your heart. Jesus will hear you. And if you're sincere, he will respond. 
But before I do that prayer, while our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed, I want to give you a chance to identify yourself. And the room's dark. I won't be able to see everyone. But if that is where you are, I want you to raise your hand high right now and say, today is my day. I see that hand right there, right in the front. I'm looking at the back. Look, I see that hand way at the back, at the back left here. I see it right up here in front, right here. Looking back in here. I see it right in the middle section at the back here. There may be others that I cannot see, but God sees. And so if you want to give your life to Jesus, I want you to raise your hand high, and then we're going to pray a prayer, and I want you to pray with me. Dear Jesus, I give you my life. I thank you for suffering for me to take the punishment for the sin I deserve. I ask you to forgive my sins, to make me right with you, to send the gift of your Holy Spirit into my life, to teach me how to follow you. Today I turn from my old life. I come under your leadership. I give you the steering wheel of my life. And I ask you to save a spot in the next life when you return for me. If you prayed that prayer, I want to welcome you into the kingdom. And right now as a church, we're going to stand together. We're going to stand right now. Would you stand with me? We're going to go into a time of worship now. We're going to sing a couple of songs. This is the time that if you want to come to the front and worship him for being your Lord and your God, you need prayer at the sides. There'll be people at the tables at the sides. You want to find a quiet place. This is the time of the resurrection. Amen. This is a time of celebration. This is Resurrection Weekend. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we thank you. We thank you that you are the Lamb of God that was slain before the foundations of the earth for us. We gather around your throne. We come as your people. We come with worship. We come with praise. We pray you'd meet us now as we come to you with resurrection power. We pray in the mighty name of Jesus Christ who has triumphed over the grave. Amen. He is risen. Amen. And because of that, because he died and he rose, we can die with him through our old life, the old creation, the fallen world that's destructive and oppressive and self-centered and self-absorbed. And we can rise with him to a new life, the life of Jesus himself, the life of his spirit living in us, a resurrection life. You see, the resurrection of Jesus wasn't just a point in time. It was the start of something new. And when we come to him, we participate in that resurrection. And one day he will return and he will restore all of creation based on what he did that day. And so this week, we want to live that out. Now, as we go today, uh, a couple things. Uh, First of all, if you don't have a home church and you live in this area, or even your way, uh, you could you could video cast us. We'd, we'd invite, uh, invite you to join us next weekend as we continue a series that we're doing right now on the life of Jesus. Uh, it's called King Jesus, uh, and it's a it's a series about uh, the life and teaching of Jesus as told through the eyes of one of the first leaders of the early movement of Jesus, a man named Mark who is a close associate of the Apostle Peter. And so he gives us the account of the life and teaching of Jesus uh, through the eyes of first-hand witness Peter. And it's just a great time to study and learn about Jesus. And so 
I would invite you to come next week. We're continuing with a message called Religion Kills. We're talking about the difference between religion, how it destroys our life, and a relationship with God that re renews our life, restores our life. So I invite you to come. Now, as we go today, uh, remind you that we're going to be doing parking and, and, and uh, exiting a little bit different. So if you have someone out there that has a lanyard on, is telling you what to do, do it. All right? If you see a policeman out there with a gun on his side telling you what to do, do it. Uh, we're upping the ante. And so... Uh, as, uh, as you go, like I said last week, remember, you are Christians, so act like it. We're patient, we're kind, even when we're sitting in traffic. And, uh, and as you go, especially those exiting on Iverson, we're going to have you take a right, go on that beautiful scenic drive up uh, Santa Susana. When you get to the top, you can jump on the freeway, go left to see me go uh, right to back to the valley, and that way we'll help with all the people coming in uh, right now, okay? So God bless you. May the Lord of the resurrection be with you this week. May you experience his life-changing power, renewing you to the new life, the life you're created to live in Christ's name. Amen.